Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm your host, Michael Amico. And today, our guest is Judith Giesberg, who has joined us to talk about her book, Sex and the Civil War, Soldiers, Pornography, and the Making of an American Morality, published by University of North Carolina Press. Judith Giesberg, an expert on the history of women and gender during the Civil War, is professor and director of graduate studies in the history department at Villanova University. She's also editor of the Journal of the Civil War Era. Two of her previous books include Civil War Sisterhood, the United States Sanitary Commission, and Women's Politics in Transition, which is about the understudied roles of women in relief efforts during the war, and Army at Home, Women and the Civil War on the Northern Home Front, which concerns the experiences of working-class women in the North. She's also the principal editor of Emily Davis's Civil War, The Diaries of a Free Black Woman in Philadelphia. Sex and the Civil War, a book whose main argument is that the Civil War is actually a turning point uh, for the rise, the proliferation of anti-vice laws, laws against pornography, abortion, and eventually the rise of the purity movements at the end of the 19th century. It's quite an original argument, and so I'm excited to welcome Judith Giesberg to the show. Welcome. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Great. So you mentioned at the beginning of the book, and as I was just give, uh, saying in your bio, that you are or have been a scholar of gender and the war. And that's part of a sizable and ever-growing amount of thinking and scholarship about gender and and war, particularly the Civil War. But, but not so much in this historiography about sex and sexuality and the war. Um, but yet here we are with your book on sex and the Civil War. So why this topic uh, as an entry point for you? Right. Yes. So it's uh, this. Um, I sort of realized um, about halfway through this project that this is really the first time I was working on a book project where there really were no women in it at all, at least no real women. They were um, all, you know, um, women, fictional women, uh, paper women, uh, photographs of women. So it was um, this was a departure. And um, for me, this project emerged uh, from my study and my teaching in the history of uh, women and gender, in particular, um, the the questions that came to me that eventually became this book uh, came to me when I was reading Helen Lefkowitz Horowitz's uh, book um, on um, the, the the as she calls it, sort of the 19th century sexual conversation that emerged um, about sex. Uh, uh, in the that she sort of traces it from the earlier 19th century, but by the mid 19th century there were. Um, various voices in what she calls as the first sort of national conversation about um, about sex and sexuality um, that came about when um, uh, sex reformers wanted to um, rethink marriage and um, and and uh, sex and and you sort of had this uh, growing um, interest in re- reforming marriage and um, and you certainly had this sort of utopian um, reformers who wanted to rethink all of society and put those most intimate relationships in the middle of it. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so this, this book was, um, was, uh, what I was reading in one of my classes and teaching one of my classes. And I discovered that, um, and of course I knew Anthony Comstock would be part of this, uh, this book and this study, um, that we, that, uh, Helen Lofkowitz Horowitz's book, book, but, just tell, I didn't realize. Just tell listeners quickly who Anthony Comstock is. Oh yes, of course. So Anthony Comstock 
um, is the uh, person who um, would would run this post-war. He was the, he was the center of this post-war morality campaign. Uh, who um, um, was part of the lobbying effort to pass a series of state laws and a federal law which was named the Comstock Law, which outlawed the um, the mailing of pornography and other erotic materials through the United States mail. And the Comstock Law became the um, main piece of legislation used by these late 19th century morality campaigners to... Um, uh, to uh, outlaw many different things, including um, information about birth control and and Comstock laws ultimately outlawed um, abortion in, uh, and, and stayed in place really until uh, the remnants of these Comstock laws were removed with um, in the 20th century with with decisions like Roe versus Wade. So the Comstock law, so Comstock was you know the, the, the sort of central figure in this morality campaign, and uh, of course. You know, studying the 19th century, I knew a lot about him. But what I didn't know was that he um, uh, was in the, that he fought in the Civil War, which was news to me. Um, and so, when I was reading this book, I realized that there was maybe something else there that I had missed uh, about the connections between this post-war morality campaign and, and the United States Civil War. And I so learned that from that. From re- yep, re- go ahead. It was re- was it, is it called yeah. rereading sex? I think. Yes, it's called rereading book. sex. Right. Yep. So she obviously mm-hmm. mentions uh, and talks about Comstock because he's crucial in the later 19th century, but she's writing, right. uh, tracing this history from the from the beginning to, to mid-19th century. And as you say, mentions right. that, that Comstock was in the Civil War and just sort of leaves it at that. And that right. grabbed your interest in, in to ask, OK, what is the place of that past for Comstock personally? Yes. And what, it, and what if anything, does the war... You know what? What you know? What? Where does the war fit into this um, longer, longer history that she traces in that book? And I think the book was published in two thousand two. In case listeners are interested right. in looking at that rereading sex. So yeah, so that was the origin of this, this book, and that's how I, I wound up, you know, studying this period and and finding out more about what uh, where the war fits into this uh, longer history and and what, if anything, the war had to do um, with those laws that were passed afterward. Right. And so we're going to we're going to get to that because that's your sort of main argument. But it is curious that um, obviously, and you talk a little bit about this, too, that, well, the assumption is that men are sexual beings and that they're going to express themselves sexually in some way during the war, Uh, not least of all because uh, they're away from the kind of usual uh, domestic lives that they may or may not have led. And you, and there's, so there's always been, I'm assuming an assumption that, that sex is a a question among soldiers at war. Um, But, but still little that's been, that's been written about it um, that in terms of um, the actual imaginations and and, and behaviors of soldiers. Although there, there is one book and you mentioned it uh, as well early on uh, Thomas Mm -hmm. Lowry's 1994 book, the story right. the soldiers wouldn't tell the sex in the Civil right. War, which you sort of say is uh, is interesting for the kind of primary source documents that he has found and uses, but also is driven by a kind of prurient interest, um, like, almost like a form of of very mild pornography. You know, ooh, let's right. read what did happen. So, so can you talk about the place of that um, uh, in your in the development of your project as well? Yes, sure. Yeah. So Lowry's book is um, really designed for um, people who read for pleasure, read the Civil War, um, you know, publications or read books for pleasure on the Civil War. And uh, and the book itself is not does not ever claim to, you know, to to take this material and want to find out what it can tell us about the culture and the sexual lives of these men. It's really more about and he even plays with this, I think, quite openly um, with the, not only with the title, but just throughout the, the collection with, you know, that this is really about, uh, you know, seeing in the Civil War people something that reminds us of ourselves, which is which is really not the intention of uh, of of what I'm trying to do, which is to find out really what sense um, and, you know, what what was what was their sexual life and, and their, their their imaginations? What kinds of what ways did they experience this central part of their identity? Uh, in a circumstance that was very different from what they were used to. So what, 
you know, that, that sort of that question about what it meant to be, you know, these men in these uh, camps and how is it that they experienced these materials that were uh, that were now widely available to them. Um, so, yeah, so I so I, I then started and, and there is a good bit of literature um, on the um, mid 19th century and the and the emergence of, of pornography as a as a sort of a, um, a, a a way to label this erotic material that that um, scholars have studied this in the European context quite extensively. Uh, but for some reason, the American Civil War, you know, it, it, it just seemed as if it was going to be immune to this. And we right. just didn't didn't want to imagine that this was part of the experience of men in in um, in in this context, which seems um, which, which almost, seems silly to even. Well, it seems yep. silly, but also it's almost a product of the history you're tracing. I mean, you talk about how, yes. how yes. the rise of these laws at the end of 19th century that essentially quiet the discussion, or at least they do. The they um, probably yes. are informing how we then talk or not talk about. Um, sex and the Civil War today, and that's a really that would be a really interesting um, uh, uh, theme to tr- trace. And again, we'll, we'll touch on that. So basically, you're bringing you're you're looking at a little bit of what Lowry uh, uh, has discovered, but trying to place it in a larger framework of meaning of of how we might understand um, socialization at the time or or, or right. gender roles. Um, uh, and you're doing that through uh, by looking at at the rise uh, and circulation of pornography. So, so right. talk a little bit about how you first began then to trace how pornography began to, to be uh, solicited and um, circulated during wartime sure. among men. Sure. Yeah. So this so it's 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 a really interesting moment in 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 the history. Um, of this country and, and, and sort of the, you know, the, the larger, um, you know, world in which this stuff is circulated because the, there's mid 19th century efforts in both France and the United States, and excuse me, for France and the United Kingdom to rethink, uh, and, and to sort of, you know, begin, there were, were some concerns about the stuff for the, that, that emerged and there were new laws that were passed, um, in, uh, in Great Britain and, and there were court cases argued in, in France in the mid 19th century. And the results were that in in every in every situation in every case they tried to control the stuff by um, by uh, through um, uh, customs laws and and trying to sort of stop the stuff from coming in or, or, or find find out how to find out how they can sort of staunch the flow of this stuff uh, and that particularly happens uh, here in the United States there's a there's a, an early effort to sort of stop the stuff from coming in that snuck into a a, a, a law about um, about customs and and and, uh, and and similar things are happening in the UK and in, in uh, France as well um, and then of course so what happens then is there's a domestic um, production that uh, rushes in to fill the void uh, now that the stuff is, is it's it's more costly and more difficult to import it uh, local so manufacturers make it ourselves. <laughs> right they make it themselves and and there's of course no copyright uh, protection of any of this stuff so what they're usually doing is simply copy i mean literally copying it from um you know from these oh, other okay. contexts and just okay. changing words here and there and right. there's really no not even an effort to disguise the fact that it's just being plagiarized wholly, you know, uh, adopted from, uh, from wherever they originally founded. And, and then it's just being produced mass on mass and cheaply in, um, in, in, in New York in particular, but in other urban places as well. And that's happening, you know, in just uh, the last few years before the civil war begins. And, and, um, and then these local, and then there are some local efforts to, um, to control, um, it, it, you know, to 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 use this law to control its circulation, as as these local manu these manufacturers discover that it's it, that it can be difficult to to circulate this stuff locally, they take to the mails because that way they can, you know, they can avoid uh, prosecution, avoid detection by simply mailing the stuff. Um, and and then the Civil War, when the Civil War happens, of course, mail gets more and more um, efficient in the North and uh, cheaper. Um, so these manufacturers are well positioned to use this moment uh, to its fullest and begin to circulate the stuff widely. The moment that the war begins, um, they see this as an opportunity and this stuff becomes widely available. And people mention that from all over the place, you know, from from um, both 
both the Eastern theater and the Western theater, the stuff is obviously reaching the men. Um, and, uh, and, and, and some, uh, officers complain about it. Uh, there's some, some, um, letters that appear from soldiers in the newspapers, but, uh, but there's not a whole lot of, uh, you know, there, there, there's not a, there's not a, a concerted effort to control this stuff really, or a really serious effort to control the stuff until, um, uh, the beginning of, uh, early in 1865, um, congressmen pass, uh, a measure that, um, outlaws the circulation of the stuff through the U S mail. Um, and, uh, this measure passed sort of, you know, very, at the very end of the war, um, doesn't get a whole lot of attention. It doesn't seem to really do anything at all. Um, uh, very few people are even charged and those people who are charged, um, seem to have slipped past any, they, they, they are not convicted. Uh, but that sets the foundation for what will be, um, uh, the Comstock laws right. in the, in its, in their aftermath. Yep. So I, two, two points I, I want to stress in what you say, um, and, and one of them I think is quite is quite interesting for, for people who hadn't thought about about uh, the the development of pornography. They may be very familiar with pornography itself, which is to say that your discussion of pornography really uh, is premised on the idea that pornography is an invention or the idea of pornography is an invention uh, that it's, right. a, it's a way of talking about certain material um, that is born out of regulating that material. Right. Um, and so, right. So, so uh, the, the meaning of images, whether they're dangerous or not dangerous um, is something that is not uh, stable over time. And, uh, right. it, and so uh, it, that's one so that there's this this is it, something that's coming out of the need to 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 regulate and police um and then in that conversation is about well what what's acceptable and what's not and then two is that this is not the whole country who's up in arms about this that there are no this is mostly yeah. a set of very uh, men who are in in political positions um right. and uh and and maybe maybe forming these laws for for all sorts of reasons but they certainly they're not necessarily if at all representative of like a cultural like a, a, a moral system you know where no. sometimes think about well those laws were so strong in the 19th century you know people must not have accepted pornography like we do today which is completely wrong it's really that there were right. loud voices <laughs> in they really were positions. right um, right and so so uh, i'm just wondering if you could just speak a little bit about how um sure that these this idea of pornography is really shaped by by well Comstock hugely and what we can talk about him for sure but even that mm -hmm. just, you know, just a f not that many men in positions of power right right it is, yeah it is it, it is a really it is a very uniquely american story in that sense as i say in the book because in both in both um in both Great Britain and in France, there are in France, there's, you know, there are some very in, um, big court cases that get a lot of people talking about, uh, you know, about about um, about images and words and how they, uh, you know, they they shape actions or how they can influence actions. Um, and 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 the same in Great Britain, there's a, there's there's much more conversation about it. In the United States, it's not there isn't, as you say, a, a groundswell of concern about uh, pornography, um, uh, during the war and certainly not after the war. There really isn't. It, it, it becomes, uh, the concern of a small group of men after the war who are seeking, you know, opportunities to either hold on to influence or to, to expand the influence that they have on American culture. And they ride the wave of, of what is the, the, the sort of, um, moral, a, 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 a sort of morally invigorated state, a state that emerges from the Civil War, um, with the sense that, you know, they have, that, that they are in the moral right, right? And, and, and certainly emancipation is one of those ways in which they sort of see you know, the, the state sort of emerges, that the United States emerges from the war morally invigorated and, and, and of course victory helps as well, all of that. Right. Um, and these camp, these, um, reformers see this as an opportunity to, um, you know, to, to, to correct other moral wrongs as well. And in this case, um, they, they target erotica, but, uh, um, but pornography, 
Um, but as you said as well, um, you know, the, 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 the term pornography is actually something that doesn't even come into usage until people who are producing this stuff and selling this stuff find up, wind up in the courtroom. It's, it's, it's really something, it's a, the, the, the term is a product of, um, of, of that moment that, that, uh, certain people have access to this stuff and, 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 and others question whether or not they should have access to it. And part of that is class. Certainly, um, the, the, the sort of democratization of, of access to this material that raises, um, you know, eyebrows among, um, among an elite who, right, they, they would see whatever, or they, they are certainly very, um, clear in their minds that any materials that they own would not, you know, it does not count as, it does not count as pornography, but that, but pornography is a problem, um, that, that needs to be dealt with. So, so even sort of the emergence of the term and in, 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 uh, the, the, the mid to late 19th century, it becomes more, it's being used signals to us that, that, that this is a struggle that has little to do, less to do with the actual materials and more to do with sort of a status, a status and other sorts of social questions that have emerged, um, that emerged in the 19th century. And some of those are about class. Some of those are about gender. I think they're also about race. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so this is the moment that this study, uh, tries to begin to, to explore is what does it mean that we begin to use terms like pornography? Uh, what does it mean that this uh, small um, group begin, identifies it as a problem that can be solved? Right, and a problem um, other people, not them. So right, you, not you, them. You say a few right. times, which is really great, you know, that, that, that there's like a gentleman pornography, which is not pornography. Right. So, so any no. quote-unquote obscene material that, that, uh, that upper class or people in power or with influence are connected um, have, that's not uh objectionable obscene material uh no but it is it becomes obscene once it's in the hands of people who are problems in other ways or are conceptualized as problems yes. in other ways um yes and obviously during the war then you have a mixing of classes and you have you do, all right. sorts of men together um who uh, who would maybe not have normally been together um, at the same time as the need for discipline and regulation and, you know, right. following rules. So so what were some of the problems that were imagined um, pornography causing among these men at war? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, so the, so the problem when it shows up in military records, uh, it, it's, it's affiliated or it's associated with in, in the minds of those people who sort of, re, you know, recorded and, 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 and describe this or name this as a problem as a problem in men's, you know, in, in this sort of, um, when they're not actively campaigning, uh, right. So, uh, so it, it then, right, exactly. So, um, during the, you know, during the winter months or other times when there's, you know, the, 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 the discipline of regular campaigning, seems to, you know, seems to solve a lot of problems. It solves the problem of drinking. It solves the problem of general indiscipline. And, and certainly um, uh, pornography is another one of those, you know, that you could sort of put in that bucket of, of things that, uh, that, uh, that the army has to deal with when men are not actively campaigning. And, and so, um, so we, so it's not surprising that we don't see a lot of, uh, in court martial records, for instance, we don't see a lot of men uh, being court martialed for holding and having this pornography. We actually don't see a lot of it when when men do. Uh, and, and the same can be said about uh, regimental order books, which is, a, you know, another level of discipline that you can find, you know, that, where you can find mentions of, of, of what they're getting in trouble for. So um, it's, it, we don't, we don't see a lot of it uh, when we, when it does show up or when we do um, hear of men uh, who uh, um, have the, have erotic materials or circulating erotic materials. They're um, also uh, in trouble for other things. So they're bad soldiers right. because of other things they're doing. And, it, and, and in some cases, those are, uh, cases when they are, you know, in, in, in the case of one soldier who I talk about in the one officer I talk about in the book, because he's sharing it, 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 it was more of a question of his sharing it with men who are not at, you know, at 
at um, or not officers. So he's married. He, it's an officer who's sharing the materials with uh, enlisted men. And, and there's a, you know, there's sort of a, a sense that, that, you know, that that in and of itself can, can lead to bigger problems and, and can, in, in uh, encourage indiscipline. Right. Um, but really, you know, really this, the, the, the erotic materials are invoked when in, in these disciplinary records, when the soldier has other problems, there's other things about him that have raised concerns. Right. So, uh, and in general, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Well, so there's a, the, when, when someone upsets the power dynamic, um, and yes. that that can be for, for, for good or bad reasons. I mean, obviously, right. like it, it may not be a problem that someone does that, or it may be a problem and that it does signal right. some other larger question of, of behavior that shouldn't be reduced yes. to sex and pornography. Um, but it can go right. either way. Right. Absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah. So the other, and you know, you know, of course that we, we know of course that other men are circulating the stuff and are reading the stuff. Uh, and they seem to have never gotten into trouble at all. So, uh, yes. so they seem to have been able to balance, um, you know, uh, what was demanded of them as, you know, as far as being good, uh, as good soldiers and, and, uh, yet still being able to consume the stuff and circulate the stuff and not run into any trouble. Um, yeah. And, and there seems to have been, and, and even when you, when we find records of the stuff in court martial records, when somebody has, you know, uh, violated some other expectation. Uh, it's very interesting to see how how much how widely uh, the erotic materials are shared, and how much knowledge these men, f- different ranks, different classes, different parts of the country, actually know of this stuff, and seem to you know not be not be concerned on some level at all about it. Again, as long as it doesn't upset any other sort of uh, expectation that one would have of of um, of a soldier yet. Right. Yet. Um, go ahead. And you also say that the circulation, even among different ranks or classes of men, um, uh, encourages a kind of camaraderie or, or it does, or even forms the camaraderie sort of that it actually almost, um, aids cohesion among, uh, the men, which is it, which is helpful right. in, in so many ways right. while fighting a war. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I think it does. I, I, uh, I mean, it, there's certainly lots of evidence to suggest that, um, you know, that, that these images and these words could bring men together uh, in a way that, um, that one would imagine, you know, would be helpful to creating cohesion among, uh, among soldiers of different ranks coming from different places in the country. And and they share that culture and they share some of the language. I mean, they know the words to describe this stuff. They know the, the words to songs and they know what the images are. So they obviously know it. They're obviously sharing it. It's not a problem. Um, right. right. And, um, this seems to be a perfect moment to bring in in Anthony Comstock because, um, you know, you, you, one of the surprising things you say is that, uh, yes, he, you know, he served in the war, but he didn't actually fight in the war in in that when he joined the 17th Connecticut regiment, Mm -hmm. uh, they were stationed, uh, in St. Augustine, Florida, which was at that time, a kind of convalescent camp, uh, Mm-hmm. for for officers and and and, and uh, other union regiments um and w- one of the things you 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 talk about is is that Comstock's disgust uh towards uh pornography and obscene talk and songs um is is very much at play among the soldiers who are doing nothing but having fun together and fraternizing right. in a way that may have uh, made him feel left out, and 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 you, you know, I, I was imagining as I was reading your you know your quotes from him uh, about that time, um, you know how much he how jealous he may have been of of a camaraderie that he was not in, uh, made a part of, and that was his sort of targeting the, the this material a way of managing his anxiety of not feeling accepted among these other men. Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And it, it, it certainly didn't help that his brother had, you know, uh, had 
um, among his, you know, his brother died at Gettysburg um, it, from his injuries at Gettysburg. And he joins the regiment to, to replace his brother and he never fit in like his brother did. And, and that certainly made that, um, yeah, made that, you know, that feeling that you described so nicely just now uh, made it just ex- exaggerated it or made it even worse because his brother had, you know, ha- his brother had made the ultimate sacrifice. He had joined the regiment early. He had really become part of the regiment. Uh, and then when he, you know, when he died, his brother came along and his brother never filled his shoes and his brother never really had, you know, Anthony Comstock never really had the, even had the opportunity to, to, to try. Uh, but he also didn't seem to try very hard. I, I don't know. I, I, from what we have left, he didn't seem yeah. to try very hard to fit in either. He seemed to enjoy on some level, he seemed to enjoy sort of being on the outside, but then I think he also clearly, he clearly resented it. And, um, and he never seemed to have gotten over it. He didn't go to their reunions. He didn't, you know, ever make any attempt to be part of that regiment in in its aftermath. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to laugh at it. I just, it's just that the emotional narrative is sort of very clear. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Yeah. You know, I don't know how, how it's just, it's very much on the surface. How, how, uh, how many primary sources in um, Comstock's voice do we have? I mean, are there letters uh, that are from that time or is it mainly biography or autobiography that's written much later at that time? Well, this is a, this was one one of the uh, frustrating things about this project is there's not a lot left on Comstock for somebody who really prided himself in being such a, this public crusader. There's um, there's hardly anything left to document his private life at all. Um, there there uh, there is a diary that um, was that big pieces of it were reproduced uh, in an early uh, biography of him, um, but the the original diary has vanished. Uh, I haven't been able to find it and other people who studied him haven't been able to find it. And the same can be said about any private, any, any correspondence, uh, wherever it is, it's, um, it is, it has escaped the, you know, it escaped the recognition of, of archivists and others who, whom I've corresponded with and other people, like I said, who've studied this period, have not been able to find it. There are these authorized biographies, people who he worked with uh, to write his biographies, those are extant. And of course, his, um, his own writings about, you know, his, his work among uh, trying to rescue young men from their, themselves and their imagination, that stuff is there. Uh, and of course, you know, arrest files, those kinds of things are all, all there, but the private Comstock remains elusive, um, in many ways, which as you say, is, is interesting (laughs) for the very fact that he's obsessed with other people's private lives. And, uh, (laughs) and so maybe there is a reason for the destruction of his own. It almost almost seems like he, he was trying to, to build a a public self that, that was synonymous with his private self. And I'm, I don't want to hold up private and public as two separate domains, but, but, but very much his sort of, um, the, 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 the language of his, of his, selfhood becomes a kind of legal language is almost adjudicated through the very terms that he helps he helps shape and and further um after the war and i I was i was right as i was imagining him transitioning from uh his sort of lack of fraternity during the war um and then to his post-war life um it was almost as if he was then trying to create uh, a fraternity of moral crusaders you know, and that, right. that would be his acceptance finally. And it, right. it was a group of, of people that, that wasn't, again, as we sort of talked about uh, when we started, not that large. I mean, you know, um, the, you know, not everyone is overly concerned with this issue. Um, but, no. you know, it was, there, there, obviously there's enough that, that he found friends um, and, uh, and that he was able to really craft the language of, you know, his own um, community, uh, at the same time, it was that it was a language that impugned other, other communities. Uh, yes. and I know he becomes, you know, this sort of sounds, I mean, this just sounds so contrived as I'm describing it. And this is probably one of the reasons why he becomes kind of a laughing stock, um, he does. Of, of yeah. in the country and then, and then abroad too. So, um, can you just touch a little bit about on that, sure. on how he was kind of caricatured as almost a joke? Yes. Even right. Though, even though super right. 
super powerful. We don't want to forget. And again, we'll right. come back to that about how 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 many waves this has left uh, it, 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 that that still churn through our culture oh, today. Yeah. But he, a lot of people saw saw him and could see through him as a joke. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah, he became uh, you know he became the brunt of jokes both here and you know and in, in, even in the British context, uh, you know. Um, he the the punchline of jokes was was Anthony Comstock, so he becomes this um, caricature of a moral crusader. Even you know even and, and even as the the laws are, are are very much in place, and it's not again it's not um, there wasn't there wasn't this large public conversation about the Comstock law, and you and you can search in vain for media coverage of it. It just doesn't get any airtime. Uh, but uh, but the Comstock law, you know, become, is is you know passes Congress and is signed by President Grant. It becomes federal law, um, and it follows uh, and is followed by state measures that um, you know that that are passed the past that do the same thing. Um, yet again, you know, there's not the it's it's not like Comstock. Was at the center of a large crusade, a large campaign. He um, he is he he joins a group of reformers who are affiliated uh, with uh, the New York um, the uh, yeah, the YMCA, right. um, and these men um, are are very very conscious of their class status, and they're very concerned about the loss of that status that they believe, you know, they believe, they believe that they, they have to be vigilant about sort of maintaining uh, influence that could, you know, that can be taken from them um, at any time, you know, by, uh, by the growth of, you know, by the, by a larger immigrant population that comes into the city of New York, but also just the sort of, you know, as, as men, as, as, as men no longer sort of search for those kinds of, um, role models and search elsewhere for role models, what will be, what will be their uh, role in, in the post-war era? Um, Many, and these men of course don't serve in the war. Um, They find ways to avoid that service. Go ahead. You say those, those kinds of role models. Do you mean Christian role models? Yeah. These, these elite Christian um, uh, self-identified. Yeah. yeah, The YMCA is young men's Christian association that that today may, may not carry that uh, as explicitly, even though it's in the name, but but its formation is embedded in a deep religiosity. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, and yes. And so, and, and they're, and they're sort of, um, and they're concerned about what will happen, uh, you know, as, as they, as, as the kind of influence that they believe they, their status uh, should give them. They they don't they they, they don't have it. They don't they don't have that in. They don't wield that kind of influence anymore um, over um, you know over young men and and over society at large. Uh, so they're concerned about this. They're concerned, and this is a very small group of people in in New York um, who are, are, are who begin to you know raise this as a concern. Uh, you know, um, by the mid nineteenth century, they're sort of you know churning out these, um, uh, you know, uh, self-help kinds of books for young men coming into New York to sort of, you know, to beware of confidence men and, 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 and to sort of, you know, watch out for people who will, uh, who, you know, who's influence, who you don't want to influence you and you don't want to, to, uh, you know, who's, you don't want to make into your role models and, and be careful of all these dangers that the city has. Um, and, and so that stuff is pre predates the war. Uh, and then during the war, these men will become, um, the leaders of the United States Christian commission, which takes this mission that they believe is evolving in, in, uh, in, in New York and, and other urban areas and takes it to the men, uh, in the form of, of sending out, um, good literature to, uh, men serving in the war and passing out, um, Bibles and other things during the war. Uh, and then in the aftermath of the war, this United States Christian commission, the leaders of that organization get involved with the young men's Christian association or the, or the YMCA, which is the center really that, that they are, they, they form the foundation for, uh, the lobbying that will become the Comstock law. Okay. So- um, uh, basically, yeah. um, 
as you've said a few times now that um, you know these the discussion around the anti pornography stuff specifically uh, is not that great, and that it's that it's no. by by a small group of of, of powerful uh, but but a small group of people men. Yeah. Uh, uh, and um, and so just to just to review, basically, um, we have we see kind of an increased circulation of pornography during the war because of uh, because of the, just technologies and also this, yep. the the uh, ready audience of men and and mm-hmm. a, a, people see this as tied to uh, potential disobedience among the ranks, which is which which can be true and can be not true. Um, right. And then we have Comstock, who is has dealing with his own personal social anxiety or. Or, or what have you, mm-hmm. um, and so those are those are all coming together for him um, in pursuing post-war um, uh, 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 anti-pornography, anti-vice laws. Now you also then right. talk about how these and, and these become um, these kind of explode or, or 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 associate themselves with with birth control uh, laws yeah. um, and uh, laws about uh, against prostitution. And, mm-hmm. and and abortions. Um, so, right. so larger larger social issues that that do you know continue again to reverberate today. So how how did that happen? That that this this yeah. nobody cares about porn really. Um, but right. it become it become this passing of this law becomes attached to other laws, and it all happens th- uh, after the Civil War. And in we'll right. about what, how you think, and I think this is right is all one with a response to the question of, well, what is a union now and, and, and how right. marriage, marriage plays into that. But, but how at first does the question of abortion and contraception and, and then also mm-hmm. prostitution come into this? Right. Right. Yeah. So the, so the, the, um, these at the state level, uh, these comp, these state level Comstock laws, um, become, um, uh, they uh, in in many cases they riders are added on to these laws that that originate as a conversation about sort of controlling and and keeping the male pure of this stuff and 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 uh, you know emerge from this uh, concern about how we can we can keep this stuff um, you know again not a big concern but a concern that that enough uh, congressmen bring back to their uh, to their local constituencies and some of the and these laws are passed at the local level. Um, and at the local level, too, there's um, these riders are added on by um, uh, physicians and um, who, who, right, who during the Civil War, um, the medical profession becomes, uh, the, the medicine becomes professionalized and uh, doctors emerge from the war uh, with a sense of themselves as being part of a profession. Uh, their, their first sort of, you know, um, medical journals and, and whatnot begin to, you know, sort of represent that, that level of professionalism. And, um, and part of that is in part of their efforts to um, sort of secure the profession and define the profession um, is translated into, into sort of um, defining what, you know, who, who, who doesn't get to practice medicine or whose medicine is not uh, considered, you know, uh, a real medicine or professional medicine. And, and these, uh, these, um, doctors uh, who uh, come back from the war are concerned about these things and are interested in these things, and they are also politically connected. Uh, and these local Comstock laws also, um, uh, you know, to the list of banned materials are added um, uh, publications uh, about uh, advising women about controlling their fertility. So it, publications that might um, talk to women about uh, about birth control, for instance, are added to the to the list of banned materials. Uh, so too are um, advertisements for abortion services. Those are all added um, at the local level, and then of course at the federal level, they get added on to the Comstock laws. The Comstock law. But not, um, but not because uh, that they're not because they're a threat to to men's um, self understanding as the as the anti pornography stuff was, but because uh, the, the yeah. explain to me the other reason. I mean, you're, yeah, you're saying oh sure, yeah, the, the professionalization of the doctors um, and wanting to control their profession uh, seems right. to be very different than you know the sort of right. Comstock anti vice stuff. Yet, yet right. both are connected through some kind of association that it's all obscene material. It is. Yes. So, so the, so, so the doctors, you know, and there's sort of, um, 
wanting to drive out irregular medical practitioners want to control, uh, want to label stuff that is not produced by medical professionals as, as obscene. Um, and also to drive out uh, those who perform or who uh, can provide these uh, medical practices. So that stuff gets labeled, uh, get la- gets labeled obscene. Um, but it also helps that at the time, there are a lot of, a lot of conversations uh, happening at the end of the Civil War about marriage. There's, there are, and this is, this is kind of where we can invoke what we already think about when we study this period about the sort of backlash that people worry about what happens, you know, that what sorts of uh, intimate relations get upset when the country is at war. And uh, there are a lot of different conversations uh, swirling around, uh, both at the federal level and at the state level about, uh, you know, what what has happened in the war and has marriage been affected. So people conduct um, studies about whether or not we're really experiencing a rise in divorce, right? Or or what should count as marriage? Right after the war? After the war, and 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 there are a lot of different. There are articles and editorials written about that. Like, are we entering a period in which marriage is, you know, is 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 uh, under stress, and what will happen to marriage? And that you can see that stuff even reflected in congressional conversations about uh, free people, right? right. Um, uh, you know, what what's going to count as marriage for them, and how can we police that? How can how do we legislate marriage, and how do we um, you know, how do we protect it if it's threatened and how, how do we define it legislatively as marriage? So all of that stuff uh, gets, you know, gets um, considered as part of these conversations as well. So, so one might not approach a conversation about or, or a concern about birth control or abortion from the perspective of medical practitioners, right? But once it's allied with or once somebody connects it to a concern about marriage, then uh, it has a larger, you know, the, the consequences of it seem bigger, uh, right? And 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 the and, and the need to control the stuff seems uh, right um, uh, legitimate. So um, yeah, so some of this the, these writers get added on maybe in the beginning because they're introduced by medical professionals, but then they become part of this larger conversation about how we can protect marriage. Right. And so again, it's about, about those in power holding on to their power and worried that, yeah. that either, either, you know, women, the women will, will speak too loudly and take it away or the, 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 right. um, uh, now free black people will speak too right. loudly and take up too much space and take it away. Um, or, right. Or not marry or not marry or in the not, way okay. that, you know, the, right. Yeah. Yeah. Or lower class people or men you just don't like (laughs) um, a number of personal reasons. Um, And so so marriage, the idea of marriage um, becomes a way to kind of bring all these issues together in terms of of, you know, uh, obviously, there's been a lot of work about about slave marriages and how did or did not translate after the war when um, slaves were free. And so were there marriages that they already had legitimate and, and right. move into that realm. And, and you mentioned as well as other scholars that um, it was, um, they, they were very much forced into a kind of marriage, a, a legal framework um, that speaks more to, to the sort of control of what, what marriage is or should be then it right. speaks to one's free choice to enter into that marriage. Right, right, right. It does. Yeah. And there's really great work um, by a scholar named Frank. Her last name is Frank or Frankie. Right. I can't remember how. Catherine, uh, Catherine Frank, um, who talks about that sort of, you know, whether or not it makes sense to, sort, to, to think about it, the freedom to marriage, or to marry or whether or not it's this, you know, uh, imposition of merit, you know, that marriage becomes sort of a federally mandated and federally defined thing. Uh, so yeah, uh, or, or at the state level. Um, so yeah, I think that, that, that this, um, this conversation about erotic materials and, 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 um, you know, uh, and, and what, it, and, and what, if anything, it, these erotic materials, uh, potentially disrupt or potentially um, threaten uh, gets very much wrapped up in these conversations about marriage. Right. Yeah. And that marriage very much stands in for a discussion about the future structure of the country. Um, yes. Especially because, well, explicitly because the question of the union and, and 
what that means was very much at stake during the war. Um, right. So it, right. it could easily have become, and I think it was in many ways, conflated with the question of, of marriage, which is really the question of proper relationships between people and what was public right. and what was private and what could potentially um, upset the power dynamics within those many times unequal relationships. Um, and, and, and so obviously now we're, we're seeing that, that sex and sexuality is a huge question of this moment right. uh, during the war and after the war. And you also, and, but it also allows us to sort of look back at, um, pre-war and, um, think about the sexualization of slavery and, and how desire, uh, functioned there. And I bring this up because, um, you, you, you talk about a little bit, um, in terms of the, how sometimes anti-slavery tracks, um, so 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 uh, material that was written to show the sort of barbarism of slavery um, could be seen as obscene um, because right. it was depicting uh, a, a slave masters and mistress, mistresses, women and men, um, beating uh, their slaves in in ostensibly a quite enjoyable way for the person in power. Right. And so, so there was a worry about, about the obscenity of that material. So if you could speak a little bit about that, but also it just sort of opens up on this larger question of how much, how much the, the sort of desire is at play, um, in mm -hmm. all of these sites. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That, yeah. I think I, I, um, abolitionists walked a fine line as did a lot of other, mid-century, you know, humanitarian reformers between uh, condemning um, what they saw as sort of this, um, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, um, this, Southern culture and Southern slaveholders as being enslaved to their emotions and to, or to their passions, um, right. And, 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 and locating a problem with sort of controlling those passions and saying that that was a particularly Southern problem, uh, in, in their condemnation of slavery and Southern culture, and also tapping a very real interest in that kind of, um, you know, the, in, in, in those sorts of vivid descriptions and, and a, certainly an erotic imagination that was shared among, um, you know, readers in the North that, that, uh, so, you know, they could, they could condemn, uh, an erotic, um, South at the same time as they could embed in their critique of slavery, uh, some of the elements of, you know, that eroticization or the way that they sort of describe violence as erotic, they could embed in that some of those same elements. Um, and they, and they talk about that. They, I think they, they are very aware that they're sort of treading a line there very, you know, very carefully about sort of, you know, reproducing the very thing that they are condemning um, about uh, their subject matter. But, um, but they also use it very quite effectively. I think there's, you know, those people like James Henry Hammond who marshal a spirited defense against uh, abolitionist critique, uh, put their finger right on it when they say, you know, when they talk about that, that, you know, that this is, this stuff has an audience in mind when they, when they describe the, the violence of slavery, they're doing it in such a way because they know it's going to titillate Northern readers and they know those readers are women and they know they want to read this stuff and they know their audience. Right. Um, and I, yep. Well, then, and reformers know know that too. I think, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then it has an it does have an emotional impact. And when something yes. hits you uh, at a sort of not purely intellectual level, um, right? Then it, it may be more powerful. And so, whatever other messages or calls for action uh, that it was um, that it was after might be more effective for that. Um, so you're right. It's, yes, it's a thin line, but it's a necessary one. It is. Yep. Uh, yes, it is. It, but it, it, again, it's you know all these all these different sites of of, of desire and and sexualization. Um, it, you know, we know they're there, but we, we we all kind of just can sense things around us, and when, when we look around and we, uh, at what we see. Um, but 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 the stakes are. It sounds to me in how we how we talk about it and who yeah. has who invents or has the language uh, that that sort of can can shape it as a problem or is not a problem or or right to see something or not see something and um, right and, and i feel like so many so many readers um 
uh, of who don't study this themselves, again, might just take the loudest people in the room as the truth, you know, that, uh, and, uh, it's simply mm -hmm. more that they had access to, to languages such as the law, um, that are, are more easily, um, disseminated and more easily recorded right. where there are right. so many other conversations going on that we don't have records for, but that are actually more representative of yes. how sex is working positively and negatively in many instances. Right. Yes, absolutely. Yep. I think you're out here that, that, that you, you stated it very well. Yeah. I think there's, there's, yeah. And there's a way in which, you know, um, um, we, we've sort of, um, given Comstock, we, we've sort of allowed Comstock to win this when we haven't brought, when we haven't brought all of those other voices. We, we haven't given all those other voices the time and the attention they need. And even, even the, even the women's Christian temperance union, right. Which begins at the, which in some ways is parallel to Comstock and some of their concerns. And it is a, it is a massive organization that, in, that, you know, that, that really uh, engages many, many, many women in its, its, its reform campaign, um, they, they haven't even really been introduced into this history effectively because they were, I mean, Comstock, it, it, Comstock um, always claims that he's worried about the young, right? That he's going to protect the young from themselves, like the youth, uh, you know, are, are going to be, he wants to protect them, even though he's nothing he ever does. Um, you know, he actually never connects the, any of those dots. He assumes that when young men read erotic material, they become, you know, they, they become violent or whatever. And, 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 and he, and he tries to arrest all of these people that he thinks produces, produce this stuff. And, um, but you know, he, he never connects the dots and he never, he certainly, his campaign is never really focused on young people. Um, and it really never, it never effectively controls the flow of, uh, of, of pornography either, but the women's Christian, Christian temperance unit actually really was interested in, 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 in children and women's lives. And they, and, and, um, and the Women's Christian Temperance Union endorses these Comstock measures because for what they, what they think they're going to do to protect families, right. but they don't go with Comstock down that road of, of translating this stuff into, into um, a condemnation of prostitutes, even though certainly the Women's Christian Temperance Union want to, they want to convert prostitutes. They want to, you know, they want to eliminate prostitution. Right, they see they these women as... Yeah. No, they don't. They see them as victims um, and they don't and, and they're not endorsing Comstock going after uh, abortionists or these other people because they see that all as part of the package. Uh, so they're, you know, so even and they're they're a really loud voice, too, but they don't get they still don't get as much airtime as as does Comstock in this conversation. We see them as these women who are closing down saloons and things like that. But they really are part of this conversation uh, that 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 we need to know more about, as are all the other you know, as are all the other people who, uh, who the Comstock laws will be used against, um, yeah. you know, throughout the, the hundred years that they're in place yeah. they're, throughout the um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And still, I would, I would argue still today, I think we still have, we still haven't gotten our, gotten over our hangover about, you know, about what, uh, about, yeah. about the America, you know, what, what sort of, um, relationship does does the American state have with sort of regulating citizens' morality? I think uh, you, uh, we're still dealing with that. And you, speaking of that, and we'll we'll wrap up um, now. Uh, you you end the book talking about um, homosexuality and how how uh, specifically right. YMCA's um, become become hotbeds of homosexual activity at community formation. Right. I mean that in a very positive, um, rich yep. sense. Um, but I'll ha I have to share you a, a, a tidbit now um, uh, from my own research because because it, it, it d directly appears at this point in the story, which is that uh, Comstock's biographer is um, Charles Trumbull, and yes. Charles Trumbull's father was Henry Clay Trumbull, who um, served as a chaplain in the Civil War, and. Mm -hmm. um, I have been writing about his uh, intimate um, same-sex relationship with another man in his Connecticut regiment, and oh, fantastic! It is a yes. it is a story that that hasn't been recorded wow. in the same way that that Comstock's has because it's not wow. translatable to legal language of the time. But, but right here's the kicker: so uh, Comstock shows up 
in, uh, when he joins the 17th Connecticut Regiment at St. Augustine, Florida, as we, we mentioned mm-hmm. at the beginning of the interview, the 10th Connecticut Regiment, Henry Trumbull mm-hmm. Regiment, is in St. Augustine. And mm-hmm. Henry Trumbull is in charge of all the churches in the town. And who does he literally hand the keys of the church over to but Anthony Comstock? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so this man who at that time was 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 in love with another man of his regiment um hands over the keys to the church to a man who obviously struggled with his own intimacies with other men um in any right. number of ways um and then uh Trumbull's son comes to write Comstock's biography um and so you know there's his history doesn't take any straight a, a road or any no, narrative. It really things, doesn't. Things yep. come and go, uh, and not always do they get better. And maybe they were better before. No, they don't. <laughs> no, they don't. They really don't. Um, and that is, yeah. And it, I mean, and, and that's a really that's a really important discovery that you've made in it. And I've never necessarily, I've never, I've never accepted that he that Comstock was as as alone as he made himself out to be. I think there's much more to be, oh, we, we have much more to discover about him though, though he saw himself as so terribly alone. I, uh, yeah, there's yeah, still more to be right. learned. So yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait to read your yeah, book. There's yeah. There's an image there that he wants to show, uh, of himself as alone. Right. Um, okay. Well, we, we should end here. Um, uh, Judith Kiesberg has been our guest for this fascinating conversation um, about her book Sex and the Civil War Soldiers, Pornography, and the Making of an American Morality um, out from University of North Carolina Press Judith, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Michael 